0: Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay. Right. Here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the Salvaton Mindroom Research Centre and I'm talking today to Professor Sue Gathercole from the University of Cambridge, who's very well known for her work on learning and especially the development of memory in children. And Sue's uh, going to talk to me about a paper. Um, published in 1990, and the title of the paper is Phonological Memory Deficits in Language Disordered Children, Is There a Causal Connection? And that's a paper that she published with Alan Sadling So thank you, Sue, for joining me. How are you
1: today? I'm very well, Sue, and delighted to be on this call with you. Thanks for inviting Aww. me.
0: Thank you. Um, so tell me, what did you discover in this bit of research? What do you think is the headline?
1: Yeah, so I'm interested hearing hearing you say the title there. Is there a causal connection? Sadly, I don't think we can actually still answer that question. But what we did find, <laughs> which I think was exciting and novel at the time, was that kids with, um, in, in many respects, typically developing kids within school who are just failing to develop language at the normal rate and of the normal characteristics, um, have a real problem in a very specific aspect of uh, their memory system. And in particular, they have problems remembering verbal material um, for very short periods of time. Um, And one of the tasks that we used was a a non-word repetition task, actually, where they hear a funny made-up word like woogalamic and they repeat it. It's a simple task, but what we found was that in this task, even though the kids' language was lagging about two years behind their chronological age, uh, they were four years behind their peers. So they were behaving like four-year-olds when they were eight-year-olds in terms of this very simple task. And um, we were we speculated that this was the source of some of their language problems, and it really sparked, um, well, a, a very large area of activity, international activity. But it has it, it, um, intrigued us ever
0: since. Mm. And so, so you touched on this. I wanted to know what made you choose this paper to talk about today. And so, um, mm. you know, you feel it was a a kind of starting point for a whole. Uh, a whole field of investigation, is
1: that right? Yeah, I, th- I think it was actually. So I'd done my PhD um, looking at, at the aspects of, of short-term memory, but just with typically developing adults, so normal mm-hmm. participant populations. Love doing that, love the fact that we know lots about verbal short-term memory, but was left, um, as the rest of the field was, with this sort of lingering con- concern that although it was great to look at it in the laboratory and you've got these very reliable experimental phenomena that came out of it and it made sense Um, we didn't know why we had the system what what role did it play in everyday life Mm. and Mm. you can't imagine anyone asking the same question about the visual perception system or the auditory perception system or the language system for example so we had something that we knew quite a lot about but we didn't know why it was
0: there Mm. and
1: this was really the first um the the start really it's i mean alan Badley played a huge role in this Um, in our sort of discussions and thinking about what role it might play, um, it was already known that although you could have adult patients, neuropsychological patients who who'd effectively lost their verbal short-term memory and had very poor verbal short-term memory, they sort of function normally in everyday life except when you get memory loose. So what the hell was the system for? Um, and really, this was the first point at which we sort of almost stumbled on the fact that actually it plays a role in learning. And, of course, when you look at adults, even if they lose this capacity, it probably doesn't matter too much because they're not doing that much language learning anymore. So mm. it, it, it actually just gives me a thrill as you're still talking and thinking about that in that respect. So for me, it's opened up an area which then broadened and in which I'm, I'm still engaged today, though it's changed in nature. Mm. So there's
0: that shift to investigating the kind of Developmental roots and the developmental role much earlier in life of this um, property and, and how it relates to other things. Um, yeah, ex- exactly. And it took us on a, a journey
1: which involved looking at lots of different types of populations, um, mm. including actually people with exceptional language abilities. So there was a, not, it wasn't work that our group did, um, but collaborators that over in, in Italy looked at polyglots. These were um, adult students at Milan University, I think, um, who were specialising in languages. They're all proficient in three different languages, uh, which they've acquired non-natively. And we looked, they looked at their cognitive skills and they were entirely normal, except they had these super verbal shocks term memories. So they had memory mm-hmm. spans that were very considerably greater than the rest of their um, monoglopsy peers. So it pointed to... Um, a dimension, a whole range of um, capacities of this system across the population. And you can either be relatively poor or relatively strong, and it has consequences for everyday life. And mm. ultimately, as a psychologist, that's what I'm interested in. Mm.
0: And so, so in this study, you recruited some children who had problems with language. Um, so what was the... Sorry, someone else is trying to call me. Let me get rid of them. I don't know if you can hear that beep on the recording. No. Um, okay, good. <laughs> um, so uh, so you, in this study, you recruited some children who yeah. had problems with language, right? So, I mean, yeah. was, there, was there a good expectation that that would be an interesting group to work with? Were you working off a bit of a hunch? You know, let's, let's just see um, if phonological memory plays a role in language. You know, what, was your, what led no. you in that direction? Well, it was
1: it Alan was, um, Badley's great insight, actually. So uh, it, was, I'd, it was a time when i just joined the then Applied Psychology unit at Cambridge as a postdoc. So I'd mm-hmm. been postdoc in, in Oxford for two years and then joined the, the APU and said that I was interested in verbal short-term memory and I wanted to find out, you know, what role it played. And David mm-hmm. uh, Crystal, who's a um, very eminent linguist with very broad interests, you probably know of, um, mm-hmm. has come and given a talk at the UNIT And he talked about kids with developmental language problems um, before I arrived. And Alan said, it just smelt of working memory problems to me. (laughs) And so um, David had had described what we now think of as the the theme type of of language impairments and problems with learning new words. And uh, he said, maybe it's worth doing. And I knew I had absolutely no experience in in, um, psychological assessments or working with kids. And um, so we beat past the Bishop's door and said, Okay, this is a, these are the questions we're asking. What tests do we give? Are there tests out there? So we knew nothing about, you know, of course, the, the very robust set of um sometimes tests available and she she was our spirit guide in designing <laughs> the study. So um, yeah, it, it certainly was was a hunch. It was very exciting. sort of in, in retrospect it was a very risky enterprise. And we only had six kids. Um, Well,
0: yeah, that's what I was going to ask about as well. I mean, that's extraordinary. Was it hard to find those six children?
1: Uh, Well, no, we were fortunate. There was um, a language unit in Cambridge, um, um, which is is a flashlight of one of the primary schools. Um, And it was a fantastically well-run language unit. These were kids who had been in mainstream education but couldn't cope because of language problems. And um the majority of the kids were kids with, with failing to communicate properly in a range of, sort of, a range of different ways variable ways, but were all, um pretty much um t- typical um intellectual abilities so they't didn't, they didn't have you know severe special needs so we we just went and spoke to the speech and language therapist and ed psychkes um who worked there and said, "Do you have any of these?" these kids that some people call developmental language disorder kids, and um, they they identify these six children. Um, It's interesting because it's quite a loose selection criteria. And um, much later in my career, I've moved very much towards loose selection criteria rather than um, stringent, exclusional ones. Um, But that's how how we found the kids. They weren't hard to find. Um, The hardest work was probably in finding well-matched control Mm, so mm. we knew that we had to have typically developing children alongside them if we were going to identify any selective deficits. Mm. Um, but the question was what controls. So we had nonverbal um ability controls. These were kids of the same age, but just who were just typically dual, I think. So they were eight-year-olds who had eight-year-old language, rather than eight-year-olds who had six-year-old language. And we also recruited some verbal controls. These we were younger, typically developing kids who were six, and they were mm. six years old in, in all of their cognitive abilities as well as their chronological age. So we mm. we put quite a lot of work actually into um, individual matching.
0: Mm. And I and I really like the way in the paper the data are presented at kind of individual level. I think you know when we're working with these kind of small groups, which obviously mm. still happens in some cases today, is you know you've got to make that a strength by looking at individual. Level kind of
1: data, as, as you know, rather yeah. than calling it. So I'm glad you to say that. Actually, when I was looking <laughs> back at it, I thought I could have done more of that. I think nowadays we would provide a lot more data accessible, and um, yeah, I was aching to look at an appendix of the data, but but those days were very different, and you know, we didn't really make data available in that way. Just just its products, and, you know, the um, the statistical outcomes. Yeah.
0: Well, yes, I mean things have changed. I suppose that. That's a nice segue to my next question. How do you think this work has held up over time? You you said at the beginning that, um, you know, the question you pose here in the title, is there a causal connection between phonological memory and language problems? It's a question that's still open today, you know. So yeah. um, tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Well, it's interesting. So um, that work and other work, often neuropsychological work going on at the same time, which has spawned quite an industry of people looking very carefully at what the critical components might be of verbal short-term memory tasks mm-hmm. that might be driving, or might generate this very specific link with language le- with um, vocabulary learning in particular. And I have to mm-hmm. say here it's particularly with the, the phonological aspects of, of vocabulary learning, of learning the sound patterns of new words. So we knew that these kids didn't have any problems um, acquiring new meanings. It was just a, the particular sound patterns. Um, so there's been a lot of work decomposing tasks like non-word repetition, repeat Wugelani or Lodinapish, patient, looking at what's involved in that apparently simple task. Mm. And there's many things. I mean, it, it involves acoustic processing, phonological analysis and segmentation. Um, you, to be able to reproduce the sound, you have to have adequate articulatory planning and output skills. And um, the many, many different um, groups have focused on different elements and said, well, what's the key element? Is it really verbal short-term memory? Um, and I suppose in the end, I don't really believe that there is a single system which corresponds to verbal short-term memory. I think all of these different component processes are part of it. and quite often when we talk about systems there are any kind of loose lines that we draw around, you know, particular configurations of processes that we have within the mm. common system that can be mm. assembled in particular ways. I think verbal short term memory is quite special in that I think it is something that's quite highly practiced. So we do often have to remember telephone numbers and we do often rem- have to remember um, spelling patterns between hearing, you know, someone actually saying how to spell their name and getting to a piece of paper to write it down. Mm. We have to follow instructions and, and sometimes to reproduce those instructions. So I think it's quite a well-worked and harmonized set of processes. But mm. I don't think verbal shock of memory is only one thing. And um, I don't know whether we want to talk about, about sort of even more recent work, but kind of in a different spectrum. What There's a level of explanation at which you can say it's probably just that it's a very, very sensitive measure of basic verbal processing and storage. Mm. We've often, this, this non-word repetition task, we've often um, referred to it, actually, for us in glowing terms, as a dirty task. So it involves met so many different things. Mm. And actually, also, we now know it involves access to learned vocabulary knowledge. So it's much easier to repeat, ballot for example, because it's got a good lexical neighbor, um, which is quite familiar than it is to say something that's completely um, unfamiliar in sound structure. Mm-hmm. So maybe the, the reason why it turns out that non-word repetition is just a fantastic behavioral signature of language impairment, and we know actually about a chromosomal basis now, is because it just it, it picks up all of these different component processes so, it's, mm. it's very clinically significant in that respect. Um, so, psychologists were interested in that, um, and the psychologists were also interested in, okay, what, what are the basic mechanisms? And I think they're probably multiple. Mm. I don't think, I think there's many, many different aspects of this language processing system um, that can be impaired. Um, much of what we've learned about developmental disorders and their genetic basis. Um, in the subsequent years indicates that um, particular types of genetic um, mutation or abnormality tend to lead to um, elevated levels of um, impairment in different com- psychological or cognitive processes. So, it's quite likely that some individuals will have actually multiple impairments, even though they might just be single processes that could
0: theoretically be isolated. Mm. Um, that's fascinating and I think you touch on such a a prominent tension I find in the field at the moment between on the one hand in desire to pull apart and pass things down into ever more refined components you know what's the contribution to this of as you say kind of auditory processing or um, existing vocabulary knowledge and so on and you know in an effort to find the kind of I guess we're looking for some sort of key ingredient that that somehow is the magical key to unlock a whole, you know, body of of processing and skills. And then on the other hand, the desire to perhaps embrace the fact that um, the way our cognitive processes work is not very clearly parcelled up. And we are using multiple skills at any one time to to perform the kind of tasks of daily life and, and, and the kind of classroom learning that children are doing, and so you know there's this there's this constant sort of back and forth between those two things I find in terms of desire scientific desire to have more precision and then a more sort of pragmatic approach to to doing work that resonates with the real world um,
1: yeah, yeah you you perfectly describe you know the the tensions and um conflicts that yet yeah, we we're facing in our current work and it's interesting to hear, hear you know because your your developmental field of, it, of interest is slightly different to ours but I think it's the same mm. problem. Um mm. so as a as a postdoc, it was it was a time when we talked a lot about levels of excavation and um particularly mm. the, the sort of MAR framework really um for um you know understanding and locating what type of theory um you're looking at and I think it is a matter of levels of explanation. Um, so, um, you know, we can talk about broad dimensions, but these um, they don't explain the mechanisms, the very precise mechanisms involved mm. in particular mm. activities. Mm. And it may just not make sense um, to try and um, reconcile these, particularly I don't think. Um, I think we'd probably just have to live with that tension and decide what it is you want to look at. Are you a a researcher that wants to really dig deep into the mechanisms um, and maybe the neurobiology of of them? um, And experimental analysis is really important. I should just say here that paradoxically, for me, the most convincing evidence that kids, um, that actually verbal short-term memory, the memory bit, is important in language learning, comes from experimental analysis of adults. Where you show that, um, you find that in word learning experiments, if you give adults really unfamiliar, um, for example, you know, Russian, Russian word forms, um, mm. sound patterns to learn to link to familiar words, um, and you use experimental conditions that you mean that you know that, you, that the, um, the verbal short term memory system is ruled out, for example, articulatory suppression, um, then they simply can't learn. Mm. And, um, you couldn't, that, it's hard to think how that could be explained in terms of phonological processing or articulatory output. So it, you can use the sort of typical adults as a model, really, mm. for what might be happening, certainly at the very early stages of the Canberra acquisition. Mm. So we, we have to cast around, really, and look at lots of different types of, of data. And um, often one of my frustrations is that people who... Um, researchers can get fixated on a particular type of paradigm and um, mm. not look at the broader evidence around and and trumpet mm. it all together. But I think by nature I'm probably um, a lumper rather than a splitter. But I have a soft spot <laughs> for splitting.
0: <laughs> a lumper rather than a splitter. That's good. Um, and so and so, how do you think we, in terms of the sort of practical lessons from this specific piece of research, this body of research that was you know engendered by it, what what. Um, i mean how are we doing in terms of supporting kids to develop um memory skills or perhaps just creating a learning environment which accommodates variability in in kind of you know memory capacities yeah. do we are we doing that well or is that well, still not something we're I, I i th- i think
1: i think there's a um there's kind of was a chasm kind or? Of there's, there's certainly a, a fault line, I think, between the aspirations of many researchers in the field and mm-hmm. um, the it's kind of a gritty, pragmatic view of mm-hmm. practitioners. And we can actually learn an awful lot from practitioners in this respect. Mm-hmm. So, um, as you know, I've got a broader interest in more complex aspects of verbal, um, of, well, of working memory and mm-hmm. how they're, they're linked, how that. That capacity, that flexible capacity is linked with a very broad set of um, aspects of learning, not just vocabulary learning. And um, in that area, there's been a massive focus on, okay, we know that some kids have um, working memory impairments and they're failing to learn and that makes sense. So what we're going to do is we're going to make their working memory better. Mm. So, And there's been uh, the last 10 years, 15 years, we've seen a huge number of training studies, working memory training studies, and I've been involved in many of them. And like many, I've just come to the conclusion at the end of the day that um you actually can't train. You can't mm. improve this system directly. Um, where there are improvements that they're highly specific to trained activities. And um it it looks to us as though actually when you do see working memory training benefits, you're just learning the individuals learning new tricks that are specifically geared to that training environment and which aren't going mm. to then propagate or translate to everyday practice. And what we want really is the chance to become a free-range, um, you know, effective oh, um, uh. communicator or, or learner. Um, we don't want them just to have learned particular tricks. Mm. Uh, so, and, and practitioners know this, education, uh, um, you know, Sankos, educational psychologists, um, pediatricians, you know, all, all, all of these groups, even though they were all hopeful. That you could actually train out these types of problems. I think there's actually a much more pragmatic approach adopted in the clinic and in the classroom, and it, it's really a matter of making sure that the child gets as much exposure to the right sort of learning conditions. Um, mm. Sometimes, for example, through you know a bit of extra phonics might help a child who's who's um, struggling to learn to read. But then, if not, it's a matter of workarounds and um, mm. finding other ways mm. of of learning. Um, you know, critical skills that mm. can then be building blocks and sometimes learning different ways and modifying the classroom environment or the learning mm. environment. So mm. providing mm. as many props and supports. Um, as kids get older, only when they're a bit older, you can arm on with strategies. And there's mm. lots to be learned from, for example, um, uh, dyslexics in tertiary education. Um, these are very successful dyslexics because they've got into, you know, they're, they're there oh, to be found in every university in every university department. Yeah. And when you ask them, you find they use a multiplicity of different strategies that they've developed and which really are designed to build on their strengths. Um, and they, they work twice as hard as the rest of the students to achieve what yeah. they achieve, but um, they achieve them by a different means.
0: I think that's such a nice lesson. You know, we we could do much better as researchers at at capturing those sort of hard-won strategies, as you say, that individuals or or groups have evolved over time and, you know, disseminating and sort of formalizing and disseminating those out to people so they don't have to go through the same agonizing trial and error process as they're growing up. You know, could be a really great contribution. We could maybe... um, Make a more explicit part of how we approach this kind of, um, you know, implementation-focused research.
1: Yeah, um, I had a, I've had a sort of long-standing dream about um, and trying to get something to time for it, though it, it, for one reason or another it hasn't come off. But mm. you might um, be a, an online system where someone could go and just kind of do some rudimentary cognitive assessment for, you know, a, a secondary school student, for example, mm. Um, mm. and um, and then would. Describe what works for them in terms of learning. And then it will be an accumulating database so that subsequent Mm. students, once Mm. they've completed their cognitive assessments, the system says, well, you know, students like you, often others have found that this can be useful. Mm. And it could be a a whole self learning propagating system in which the participants are the
0: contributors and the beneficiaries and it's all, um, it, it works for itself. Oh, that's a very nice idea, too. I hope someone listening calls you off and offers you some money for it.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, maybe so you and I can... Yeah, yeah we'll get that off we'll ground. We'll Absolutely, yeah. no problem. Um, so and, and if you don't mind, I just want to ask you one more question before we wrap up. I just I just wanted you to sort of think about, you know, this paper was published in, in 1990, because this is 30 years ago now. Gosh, it's extraordinary. And I just wondered if, sort of looking back over the time that you've been working in the field, whether you could share with the listeners something that you think is a kind of big change that's happened in developmental psychology. You know, um, it could be about the way that we're doing the science, but also Mm. about the sort of culture in academia. I don't know if you want to, um, Mm. you know, share some words of wisdom in that respect.
1: Yeah, my words of wisdom have all been spoken by others, really, I think, in this respect. But for me, the major shift is just the recognition that diagnostic categories are, you know, probably don't exist, may not be very useful ways of thinking about how to characterize kids' strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I've, you know, increasingly, I can see the roots of it early on, actually, in my work in the 90s, but increasingly became concerned that actually many of the kids who are actually who, who don't thrive in school, um, they, they, they fall below radars. They certainly fall mm. below research radars and for a long time, mm. there's just this huge mismatch really between selection criteria for um, research studies, which were mm. um, you'd, you'd be looking at um, a developmental condition that supposedly had a, a prevalence rate of five percent, but you couldn't actually find them. They were not hence, you know, they, yes, and it's, it's because it, it's because they didn't really exist, or any, you know, a tiny, tiny proportion. And actually many kids had that kind of problem, but then maybe they had other problems that would exclude them. Mm. So um and there has just been this big shift, um, which I found very appealing. So asking a sensible question, generating hypotheses, but let, letting the data tell you um, really what you, what you need to know. So um, you know how, how kids are, what their characteristics are, what co-occurring conditions there might be. And I think we have moved a long way into understanding that it's the level below, down, it's one step down from the... Um, the diagnostic category, whether it's a rigid one or whether it's just with has reading problems, to looking at actually what their specific behaviour and cognitive problems are. And it's only when you understand that at the individual level that you really know what 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 your targets are for
0: for for helping and working around. Mm, mm. Oh, that's such a great observation, I completely agree. Um, so I think we should wrap up. Thank you so much for your time, Sue. Um it's a pleasure. <laughs> um, anyone who's listening, you can find out more about Sue Gavacol's work by following the links in the podcast description. And um, thank you very much, Sue. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Okay. Thanks, Sue. Bye. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly.